In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it speaks of the resurrection. And Paul is writing this to give, to give an indication of some of the proof of the resurrection. And, and he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So he says that it is by this that a person is saved, unless they believed in vain. So that must mean that there, it is possible to believe something, but for that belief to be in vain. Or else he wouldn't say, unless you believe in vain. Right? It must be possible to believe in vain. So that our belief doesn't get us anywhere. So what does it mean to believe and not believe in vain? Or believe and believe in vain? And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and after he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all to one untimely born he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, uh, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is worthless. Moreover, we are, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life also... We are of all men most to be pitied. He says multiple times that our faith is in vain and our faith is worthless if we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for a person to say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the resurrection, I think it speaks in that category of believing but believing in vain. If we take the context of what the Scripture is saying. Now, what happens in our culture and in our society, as, as C.S. Lewis says, is that we, we mix up this term Christian, and we, we, we think if somebody's a good person, they're a Christian, but we have a perfectly good word for that, he says, and that's the word good. And so, Christian means that, that one who actually follows the, the teachings of the apostles, and so people were called Christians when they followed the teachings of the apostles. The teachings of the apostles here 
are that Christ has risen from the dead. And without this, our faith is in vain. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we believe, that, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that He's risen from the dead, we shall be saved. So that if we're willing to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that He's risen from the dead, then we shall be saved. So what is the prescription for salvation? It is willingness to confess that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that He's risen from the dead and then we shall be saved. So this then comes driving home to us. How important is it to have the resurrection and to take hold of that as a believer and to believe on that? One could go so far as to say, from this portion, and I think it is a fair interpretation from this portion, that if we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe in vain. In Romans, one would say, we are unsaved. If we believe in the, Lord, in the resurrection of the Lord, we are saved. And he goes in and he starts talking about this, where he says he appeared first to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to over 500 people at one time. So what he's doing is he's giving evidence for this resurrection. Remember, in that he appeared to over 500 people at one time, this cannot have been a hallucination, because hallucinations are never shared, they're individual. You can't have 500 people see him at once. In fact, you don't even have two people hallucinate at once, because hallucinations are not shared. If one were to fake the resurrection, say the disciples wanted to pull this whole thing together and say, let's, have, let's fake this thing and just say that there was a resurrection. Uh, um, Will Durant, who wrote The History of Civilization, it's this volumes of The History of Civilization. There's a chapter called the, the, uh, uh, Caesar and Christ, because this time period, and he, he listened to time periods, and Will Durant, an agnostic Jew, who writes as a historian, says that for the disciples to have made up this story in the Gospels and of the resurrection would have been more miraculous than all the acts that Jesus himself had done. Because it could not have been made up so perfectly in the eyes of a historian. And so let's begin to look at that. Let's, let's begin to look at what are the arguments against this resurrection account, the resurrection account in the Gospels as it's displayed in the Scriptures? What's the argument against it being falsified? And generally what happens is that if you're going to have some legend, what you do is you wait some long time period, often hundreds of years, before you come out with the legend to say, back 200 years ago, such and such took place. You wait some time period for everybody to die who lived at that time to come with the legend. This is actually how legends come. They don't originate at the time period when the people are living. And what you see here in the Gospels is the naming of people specifically and its early origin. In fact, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost 50 days after the Passover, that's what Pentecost means. And he stood up on the day of Pentecost and he gave a testimony of the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So within 50 days after the event, Peter is testifying of, of this. So the origin is, in fact, very early, much unlike legends that take place. Secondly, what happens is, is when you want to come out with some falsified event that, that's going to start this great legend, you publish it far from the location in which it was, has taken place. You don't come out with it in the same city that it took place. You say, far, far away, in a faraway land, such and such happened. Not here, in this place, in this city. To the very people that lived at the very time that it happened. Do you come out with an account if you were going to falsify it? Any one of these that I'm giving you is enough to say that this is not a falsified account. Already I've given you two. Thirdly, you, you select witnesses very carefully. Very carefully. Because remember, people are living at this time. And so what does he do? He names here, he appears first to Cephas. That's Peter. He appears first to Peter. He says. And so he's giving this list of people. He also talks about, in, in the Gospels and in John chapter 19, it says he appeared that... that that the burial was done by Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. Remember, if you're going to falsify something, you don't pick out very specifically and say, and this person, and that was a very prominent person, a member of the Sanhedrin. That would be like a member of our Supreme Court. A very prominent person. Along with Nicodemus, uh, so, so you had uh, uh, Nicodemus, you also have jo Joseph of Arimathea. Both of them listed in John chapter 19. Both of them members of the Sanhedrin are named by name. And he is appealing to us, go ahead and investigate it. Here's the name of the people that saw it. Here's the name of the people that buried him as dead. And here's the people that see him alive. Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. He appeared to the apostles. And then he appeared to over 500 people at one time. Most of them are still alive, he says. Go ahead, ask them. So he's inviting us to ask them. And then the other thing that he does is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says he appears first to Cephas. He appears first to Peter. But that's very strange because in, in Mark... In Mark chapter 16, verse 1, in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 16, verse 9, it says, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared, to, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So you see in Mark, it says he appeared first to Mary. In 1 Corinthians, it says he appeared first to to Cephas, or to Peter. What's going on? Paul, in 1 Corinthians, is making a legal argument, saying, check this out, he appeared first to Peter. But we know from the Gospels, what do you think? Paul didn't know the Gospel accounts, he didn't speak to the disciples what was going on. He knew that the first individual that Christ appeared to was Mary. But because women had no legal standing, 
in Israel or in Rome to testify in a court of law, their word meant absolutely nothing. So to give a legal argument in, in, in 1 Corinthians and saying he appeared first to Mary meant nothing. You know, I, I have a niece who's two years old. And this niece of mine is the cutest little girl. And she's got this, this ponytail she wears and so cute, big eyes. And she has this habit of flushing things down the toilet. So, like, you know, they walked in one day and she was saying, bye-bye, cookie monster, and, and it's just swirling down the drain. Just, and, and, and my brother-in-law, who had left his watch in the bathroom, his watch is gone. She flushes things down the toilet, likes to watch them swirl around and go right on down. And you say, did you flush that watch down the toilet? Yeah. Did you flush it down the toilet? No. Did you flush it down the toilet? Yeah. Did you flush it? No. No. You don't know what to do. I mean, you just want to just eat her up. She's so cute. Just give her another watch to flush down the toilet. But her testimony is totally useless. It, it is meaningless. One way or the other, you don't really know if she flushed the watch down. She may have, she may not have. A two-year-old's testimony means absolutely nothing. They don't know what it means to lie, what it means not to lie. It just, it goes either way with them. So it was thought a woman. And so it actually makes sense that Paul, in 1 Corinthians, wouldn't start with the woman. He says, you want the evidence? Talk to Peter. You want the evidence? Talk to the twelve. Don't bother with the woman because it wasn't for legal argument. However, that they should, the Gospels should report it as his appearing to a woman first actually builds credibility for this not being a falsified account. Because had they been falsifying the account, they never would have said he appeared first to Mary. Because people would have said, it's meaningless. Well, why would the Gospels record it as he appeared first to Mary? Because that's the way it happened. The Gospels are recording what happened. This actually speaks to the testimony being true because nobody in the right mind would have said, hey, let's build this up by having him appear to Mary first. So it actually makes the Gospel account more trustworthy, this, that this is not a legend. What's another piece of evidence? Nobody saw Jesus rise from the dead. Nobody actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. The best account of this is in Matthew. And in Matthew it says that an angel of the Lord came. In Matthew it says, Now after the Sabbath, in Matthew 28, verse 1, As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning. I'm, I'm having trouble reading this because my eyes are going. That's, that's the problem. So. And his clothing, 
as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus uh, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. So, there is no gospel account of his actually bursting forth from the grave. We know that he came out of the grave, but nobody saw it. The angel reported it, but it wasn't like Mary walked up and, Jesus is coming out. Why would they leave this out? If they were making it up, why not just say, you know, he came out with this burst of lightning. And he's, you know, just floating out of there. There is actually no account of anybody seeing him rise. They saw him risen after he had risen. But the process of coming out, nobody saw him. If you or I were making this up, we would have just, this would have been the biggest part of the drama. Right? You would really make this thing up. And you know what happens is, we as lay people read this, and we don't realize that this is not made up, but a historian looking at this says, whoa. That none of the four Gospels record anyone seeing him actually zipping out of the grave. They see him after he had risen. They see him go into the grave as a dead body. Then they see him after he's out of the grave. Nobody sees him in the process of coming out. That actually lends authenticity to the account. Because this is the part that we would gladly embellish if we were making it up. But actually no one saw him. Why would the gospel then record it this way? Because that's the way it happened. Nobody saw it. You think Jesus knows what he's doing and how to build up a credible account of his resurrection? He knows what he's doing because he knows this is to be recorded for all of us to read 2,000 years later. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 13. Well, uh, go back to. Um, verse 11. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together... They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will, we will win Him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. So a guard was set there. And the guard was told to guard this grave. Jesus is gone. They are in big trouble. They are going to die for this. And so they come back into town and it says that the, the, the Jewish leaders realized that they were in big trouble because now the body was gone, just as had been prophesied. And so they paid the guards a sum of money and they said, just say 
that while we were asleep, his disciples came at thy night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, the problem with that is, if they were asleep, how do they know who took him away? They couldn't know, right? If they're asleep, they couldn't know. Right? So they can't know who took the body away if they were asleep. But that's what happens when you make up stories. They don't make any sense. When you make up stories, they fall apart very quickly. And that same argument is used today. Oh, when the guards were asleep, his disciples took him away. Well, that goes away very quickly. If you read the account of the four Gospels, it appears by a first reading that they are different. That each one of the four Gospels is different. That's what it appears like. Like the accounts are different in the resurrection accounts and in the appearances account. That is not true at all. In fact, I spoke about that on my, at, at my Sunday school class just this past Sunday, showing the four accounts and how they match up perfectly, absolutely perfectly. But they are all written, different parts of the same thing are all written. And you can, you can actually listen to that online from my website. But if they had been exactly the same it would have spoken of collusion. So people say, oh, well, the four accounts all are a little different, so it's obviously falsified. Well, duh, it's obviously real. You know what happens in organic chemistry? Let me tell you what happens. Is, is, um, one day, the, these two students had to be away together on a trip. And it was the same day of my, that I was giving an exam. So I said, no problem. We'll just administer the exam on, on this trip you're on. So I gave it to the professor who was traveling with them. And I said, administer the exam on such and such a night. And they have two hours. It's the honor system. They can go to their room. Each one of them can go to their, room and, and go to their respective rooms. And they can take the exam and then bring it back to you in two hours. He says, no problem. So I gave him the exams in a folder. And when they had come back, he gave them to me. And usually the TA grades the exams because, you know, I just, I just go in and teach. I don't like questions. I don't like comments. That's all for the TAs. And then I just walk out. And, and the TA grades the exams. But here I, you know, I got these two and, and the TA wasn't around. It didn't take me long to grade two exams. That's not a problem. And so I grade one exam and then I look at the other exam and I'm going... I thought I just saw this. With organic chemistry, there is one, one right answer, but there are a million wrong answers. And when the wrong answers are all the same, there's a problem. And not only were the wrong answers the same, the molecules were drawn at exactly the same angle. You know, and that never happens by coincidence. And so all the wrong answers, they're all drawn at exactly the same angle. And I start comparing these two. It's almost like an overlay in trades. It's just amazing. And so, you know, I turned this over to the Honors Council, and then, you know, these, these two folks got in big, big trouble. Because when things are exactly the same, it's a dead ringer for collusion that the four gospel accounts are not exactly the same, but they all coincide 
is a dead ringer for it not being collusion. When you have two people watch a, an event, say a car accident, they describe this thing differently. You say, well, no, you're wrong. No, no, you're wrong. But they're describing the same event and the two arguments can be totally consistent with one another. But they won't be identical. And if they're identical, you know that they've been talking with one another and planning this thing. That the, there's four gospel accounts which speak of the same event and none of them crisscross with each other. None of them go crosswise or orthogonal to each other. None of them. But it speaks of them actually being accurate. Look in, in Mark chapter 16, verse 11. Mark chapter 16, verse 11. And when they heard that he was alive and had not been seen by her, I'm sorry, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. So they refused to believe it, it says. Now look in Luke chapter 24, verse 11. Luke chapter 24, verse 11. But those words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Okay, so what are the, what are the apostles doing? The apostles are actually speaking of themselves as not believing. That would never, ever happen. You know what the apostles would write? They hadn't yet seen the Lord. We hadn't yet seen the Lord. But we believed. Because we believed what the Messiah had said. You always write yourself into a good light. I do. I do. When I'm giving an account of a situation that happened, and I'm writing this thing, I never speak about all the bad things I did. I just don't. And I'm not the only person. Who does that? I'm always speaking of myself in a better light than what I deserve. It's not untrue. It's just in a good light. You know, I just forget about the parts that I don't want said and say the parts that, that I want to. Let, let me give you an example of this. This is, this is a classic example. Acts chapter 22. It happens in the Scriptures. You'll see this guy just writing something so much better of himself. Acts chapter 22. Verse 22, Acts 22, 22. They listened to him, that means Paul, up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing their coats and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might, they might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, 
Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander said, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go, and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and, and, and because he had put him in chains. Okay, so this Roman, this Roman centurion has Paul arrested and says, oh, you know, just some stinking Jew, let's just scourge him and find out what's really going on here. Why, why all the ruckus? Well, then he finds out, as Paul is stretched out, why did Paul wait that long? I don't know, maybe for the effect. And then he turns to the guy who's about to scourge him. He says, oh, by the way, let me ask you, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and yet uncondemned? And the guy goes, gulp. (laughs) Then he goes to his commander and he says, what are you about to do? He wanted no part of this. And his commander finds out that, yeah, this is Saul of Tarsus. He was born in Tarsus. He's a Roman citizen. Maybe Jewish, but he's still a Roman citizen because he was born in, in, in Tarsus. And I had him put in chains, and I was about to scourge him, and he starts getting really worried. Well, look in Acts chapter 23 now. So now the commander is writing a letter to explain all the incident that happens in Acts chapter 23, verse 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Go. Get 200 soldiers ready at the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They also, they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman and wanting to ascertain the charges for which they were bringing against him. I brought him down to their council and da 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 da. Well, so, you see, what he wrote really wasn't untrue. But it really wasn't the whole truth of what happened. I, being the great one, came and rescued him and wanted to ascertain the charges. This is how people write. This is actually true. This is how people write of themselves. If the apostles were making this up, they would write of themselves, of course I believed. How could I not believe? Because he spoke it. I I believed every word he ever spoke. Believe it. I believe every word. Every word he ever spoke. I believe it. That they wrote of themselves that they didn't believe it. Actually speaks that they're telling the truth. How about, how about this this whole resurrection account. That they are encouraging us to look at it. They say, 
here is where his tomb was. Here's the tomb, right here. Go look at it. They're saying, go examine it. His, the place of his tomb was documented for them. They said, in the garden, right by nearby where, where he was crucified, in that tomb that had been hewn out for Joseph of Arimathea, that's where. He wants them to look at it. He wants, they, they are calling us to examine the people. Right? Here's their names. What do you do if you're making this up? You know what you do? You don't want people examining it too closely. You say, if you examine that, that tomb, it means you really don't believe it. And a curse will fall on you. That's what you do. You surround with curses and omens anybody who tries to investigate this. But the Bible encourages us to look into it. If you're making something up and people start questioning you, what, do you, what happens? You start resenting it. And you start trying to cover this up in many ways. You say, don't, don't get too close. <clears throat> it's none of your stinking business. But they're inviting us to look at it. What's the other thing they say? They say that he physically rose from the dead. His body came out of that grave. It is not just a spiritual resurrection. You know, many people will accept that Jesus rose from the grave spiritually. Resurrection was never meant as a spiritual thing in Israel. It was a physical thing. But Jesus put that to rest very clearly in John chapter in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20. The disciples had seen Jesus. They were all together when the apostles had seen Jesus, except for Thomas. And they told Thomas that they had seen the Lord. And in John chapter 20, verse um, 24, it says, But Thomas... One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails, and put my finger into the place in the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, does that look to you like a guy who is wanting to believe? This is a man who says, Look, I'm not going to believe it. And just to be sure, look, I don't believe you guys. But if I did see him, I'll tell you, I still wouldn't believe it unless I stuck my finger into those holes in his hands. And unless I stuck my hand into the hole in his side, I would not believe it. That's what he says. It's pretty strong. This is not a man who really, you know, oh, I just imagine hard enough. Oh, yes, yes, I see him. I see him in my mind's eye. He doesn't do that. This man is just, he's real. He wants to know for sure. In eight days, his disciples, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, Jesus came 
the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see me and yet believed. So look what he says to Thomas. He says, Thomas, reach here your hand, reach here your finger and see my hands. Thomas had said, I will not believe it unless I stick my finger into the holes in his hands and stick my hand into his side. And when Jesus comes, Jesus said, Thomas, I heard you. Come here. Thomas is probably like, no, this is good enough, I understand. Jesus said, come on, finger, extend it, put it through the hole in my hand. And then he says, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. No, that's okay. It's all right. He said, come here, I want to show you how big the hole is in my side that that centurion stabbed into my side when I was in the cross. Come here. Look at this hole. You know, like, <laughs> you know, when guys are showing off something. Look at this. Look at this hole. <laughs> now he says, put your hand in. Remember you said you wouldn't believe unless you... It's okay. He said, Thomas, hand in. More. <laughs> Feel that heartbeat. I'm alive. It's warm in there. And Thomas falls and says, My Lord and my God. Was this a spiritual resurrection alone or a physical? How much more evidence could Jesus give of a physical resurrection other than maybe eating? Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Reading from verse, we'll pick it up at verse 36. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and and he said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Aha! They thought they were seeing a spirit and Jesus wants to put this spirit thing to rest. He wants them to know for sure Physical, physical, physical resurrection. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So they touch him. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said, have you got something here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. And he said, these are my words which I spoke to you and so forth. I ask you, when is the last time you saw a spirit eat? I ask you, have you ever seen a spirit eat? No. Spirits don't eat. Jesus ate. They gave him a piece of fish and he ate. How much more? Finger in the hand. Hand in the side. Feeling his 
flesh, his bones. Get something to eat? Give him a piece of fish. And he eats it. Jesus is alive physically. This is the resurrection they're talking about. If they made this thing up, why talk about a resurrection? Why do this? If they were making something up so that they could get a new religion. And get a lot of people to start, start following it. Why would you take something as incredible as a physical resurrection? And then couple that with repentance. Which is the hardest thing for a person to do. To confess that I am wrong. I'm a stinking sinner. Forgive me. I will turn from my wicked ways. Why say physical resurrection you must believe in and you must repent? Why not just talk about, oh, we're going to start a new religion. Let's make this thing up. Let's just talk about how Jesus loved the little children. Jesus, He loves people. He delivered them. That's much easier to get a group of people to follow you with. But how do you get a group of people to follow you with a physical resurrection? Remember, these things don't normally happen. And then couple that with, oh, by the way, you have to repent. You have to confess that you're a sinner and turn from your sins and repent. Never, never, never would anyone have made such a thing up. This would not be what you make up to get people to follow you. And then, finally, many people would be willing to die for what they believe. I would die for what I believe concerning Jesus Christ. And I believe many of you would die for what you believe. Many people will die for what they believe to be true. Muslims die for what they believe to be true. This is not just Christians. Lots of people die for what they believe to be true. But remember, with the disciples, it was different. For them, it's different than for us. I believe the resurrection to be true. I've never seen the physical body of the risen Lord with my own eyes. I've never touched Him with my own hands. I've never stuck my own hand, this hand, into His side. Never done it. But I believe that He has risen from the dead. And Jesus said, blessed are you because of that. However, for them, they knew it to be true. Nobody will die for something they know to be a lie. You don't die for something you know to be a lie. For them, it was different than us. They, Every one of the disciples... Some are recorded in the Bible. Others are recording, recorded only in church history of their death. Peter, it's recorded in church history that he was crucified upside down. Two of the disciples were flayed alive. That means you tie the person down and you peel their skin off. You skin them alive. 
That's what it means to be flayed alive. How painful is that? These men died for what they knew to be true. Had it been a lie that they made up, one or all of the twelve would have said, hey, you want to kill me? Joke! Made it up! It's just a fabrication! These men died for something they knew to be true. You couple these together, and this account could not have been made up. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is what is before us. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we are confronted with. That's what's before us. And the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Don't you see? Only God could have done it this way and have it so recorded, so perfectly, that it speaks to us 2,000 years later to the extent that we would die for what we believe to be true. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Is that okay to, to move right into that? We're going to take the Lord's Supper. and Let me, let me describe this to you. This was not my idea. This was, this was the organizers of this Good Friday event here. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And, and uh, you don't have to take it. You can take it. Let me describe to you what the Scriptures say about this so that you know what it is. The Scriptures say, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. And after breaking it, He said, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. He didn't say, if you, well, you know, if you feel like it. He said, do this in remembrance of Me. That sounds like a command. Do this in remembrance of Me. He says, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. And then the Scriptures say, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. It's a proclamation that He died. And remember what the Scriptures say, I give to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He says that's the most important thing. That He died, He was buried, and He raised again. That's what the Scriptures say is the most important thing. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in My blood. When He died, We came under a new covenant. The whole old covenant was done away with. The whole thing. A lot of believers want to hold on to certain laws in the Old Testament. You don't have to. You really don't have to. And if you hold on to one, why don't you hold on to them all? And the Bible says, if you fail in one of them, you've failed in them all. The New Testament has about 150 commandments, which can keep us quite busy. So the New Testament, the New Covenant has plenty. But it's a very different sort of thing. His love draws us in. It is a beautiful thing. He says, remember me in this. And when He took that cup on the cross, 
on Good Friday, at around 3 p.m., when he took that cup, he said, it is finished. He had told the disciples in the Passover feast, he says, I will not drink of this cup again, the fruit of the vine again, until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And it says, at that Passover feast, they sang a hymn and they went out. To anyone who is from a Jewish background, you know that something went wrong because you don't end the Passover feast with the singing of the hymn. You always have to have the Kedush cup, the last cup. That ends the Passover feast. He didn't close out the Passover feast on Thursday night when he took the feast with his disciples. He closed it out on Friday when he took that cup on the cross. He said, I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he took of that cup and he said, it is finished. The Passover feast is finished. And it says, and he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. He bowed his head. When people just drop dead, they drop their head. Jesus gave up his life. We're going to take of the Lord's Supper. You guys could come, get that and, and bring it right up here. And there's, we do this because he said to do it. And we remember him in this. And the other thing it says, it says, Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks the cup, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. But if he judges himself, he won't be condemned along with the world. He'll just be disciplined. I mean, think of how beautiful that is. What's this picture? There's this picture that Jesus says that we are to examine ourselves before we take of this. That means we say, Lord... We just speak this to God. Lord, is there anything in my heart that I need to repent of? Lord, remind me of that. And then when He brings something to your mind, say, Lord, forgive me. And if that repentance means that you need to apologize to somebody, you make it a point to do that. But it says, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Just make it a point to do that and then follow through on that. Or if it means a confession to somebody because the offense was against another person, go and make that confession and you're free. I mean, I make confessions all the time. I was just confessing to my secretary yesterday because I got her upset with something and she confronted me with it and I said, you know, you're absolutely right. I am wrong. I'm so sorry. I mean, you do it all the time. Then it becomes easy. Correction and reproof are a way of life for the believer, it says. And it says if we don't do that, if we don't do it, we bring judgment upon ourselves. And for this reason, it says many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You want to know why there's a bunch of weak and sick Christians and some even dying? Not that all death is because of it, but some death is because of it. Because they've never dealt with their sins every, every week that the Lord has offered them the Lord's Supper. And so you deal with it. And it says that if we confess it, we're not condemned along with the world. But He brings us to it. We can bypass that weakness, that sickness, and that suffering by confessing our sins. This is a beautiful picture. And why more believers don't take hold of this isn't because 
they're bad people is because they just don't know this truth. That you can be free. This is why I love the Lord's Supper. I love it. Some people say, well, oh, wait a minute. I, I wasn't ready. Anna. I wasn't ready for that. Well, then, you, are you a believer? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that He's Lord and He's risen from the dead? You're good to go in God's book. It says that you eat and drink judgment if you, if you partake of this wrongly. So what about the man who doesn't partake at all? Because it says, so let him eat and drink. We are to partake. He's given us something where we come each week and we come and we say, Lord, is there anything here? Let me deal with it now so I don't have to be disciplined by you. I'd really like to bypass some discipline, wouldn't you? If I can just repent of it. But if we don't deal with it, the heat gets turned up. We go through all sorts of stuff that causes us to go, oh, now I see. You know, after I lost my wife and my family and my house, now I see, oh yeah, okay. Now I see what I was doing wrong. But you hate to have to lose your wife and your kids, your family, your house, everything. Wouldn't it be easier just to say, oh Lord, please forgive me. Then you keep everything. <laughs> this is what it says. We're not disciplined alone. This is the beauty of it. So, whoever wants to partake, when, when you guys hold this, why don't you come on up here, take one of these and take a cup, take one of these pieces of bread, take a cup, just walk on up and go back to your seats and just stand there. And we're going to partake of this together. Anybody who wants to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. Yeah, watch the cords and, uh, and then just go stand, stand up there at your seat, anybody who'd like to partake. And this is for any believer. And if you don't want to partake, there is no condemnation. You don't partake. You're fine. You don't have to. Okay, so we're just going to take a couple of minutes. For each one of us to just meditate before the Lord and say, Lord, search me and try my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And ask God to search your heart and see if there's something there that you need to ask forgiveness for. And then ask Him. And if that forgiveness involves another person, contacting another person, make a commitment to do that. And we'll just wait a few minutes before the Lord. Give each of you a chance to do that. And on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take of the bread. And he took of the cup also after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take of the cup. And Lord, we remember your body which has been given for us. We remember your blood which has been shed. And we proclaim your death until you return. 
And we proclaim that You rose from the dead and that You're coming again. And Lord, I thank You. I thank You because Jesus said, unless a man eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he has no part of me. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Lord, thank You that we can partake of the very body and blood of the Lord. Amen.